and I've never met him in person, but I kind of feel he's a friend, certainly a friend of this station and Chalk Radios, and I've spoken to him many times in the past. His name, John Bonfiglio, he's a Central American correspondent, and I'm delighted to welcome him to Talk Sport Extra Time and to ask him how the devil he is, and also how he's coping with whatever state of affairs lockdown is bringing to Mexico. Good morning, John, and how are you, sir, and great to talk to you again. Good morning, John. Hi, boy, yeah, it's been a while. Uh, all good here, uh, more or less. You know, lockdown now in six... Sixth week of lockdown in, in southern Mexico, complete alcohol ban, which has been doing wonders for my home brewing. Um, but beyond that, much the same as, you know, elsewhere in the world. I guess we, we wait and we see. So a complete ban on the sale of alcohol throughout the whole of Mexico. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and uh, beer factories stopped producing about a month ago. The rumor mill has it that they're going to start up again in about a week or so, but, but nothing really has been has been stated. Numbers are increasing here. I mean, not exponentially. I'd put Mexico in a kind of in a middle tier in Latin America in terms of um, in terms of cases at the moment. You've got 40,000 confirmed cases, 4,000 dead. I mean, nothing like Brazil, for example, which is yeah. at the at the full end of the scale and nothing like, say, a Nicaragua or Belize that have next to next to no cases. But the worry, which is the case right across Latin America, is uh, what are the numbers really at? Because, you know, if you look at um, average numbers of, of, of dead um, year on year, they're significantly higher than what the coronavirus COVID confirmed um, cases state. And certainly, in a, for example, in a Brazilian context, it looks as though the real rates are probably 15 to 20 times mm. what's currently being reported. And it's so difficult to even get an estimate, guesstimate of what the situation might be in some of the favelas in Brazil, in Rio, or even amongst the indigenous peoples. Yeah, uh, totally. And actually, one of the really interesting things that's taken place, I mean, you, you and I have spoken many times in the past about power vacuums in, in Latin America, but talking about the favelas and also here in Mexico, over the course couple of, of course of the last couple of weeks is how organized crime has stepped into the breach if you like where the government hasn't really been doing its its role and certainly the favelas have been imposing quarantine sorry the uh, organized crime has been um, and gangs have been uh, imposing quarantine in the favelas and um, kind of much the same with the cartels here in in Mexico that have been making a big deal recently over the course of the last couple of weeks of handing out branded aid. I mean, they're not hiding behind it. Mm. You know, there's boxes with branding of El Chapo's face on it or the initials of the new um, Jalisco generation cartel, etc. They're very much out there um, realizing that this is an opportunity to curry favor in the absence of the government being able to do anything about it. Um, and and taking charge of, of the situation. So I've come to think of it, to think of it and begun to report on it as a kind of a series of secondary effects that yeah. coronavirus is causing across the region, which were kind of un unexpected and for sure the emer not the emergence. I mean, organised crime was already here, but but how organised crime has decided to to organise itself, unsurprisingly, and step into these gaps has really been quite remarkable to see. Now, um, we've also had reports that Donald Trump, for example, is talking about trying to paint the wall between Mexico and America such it is black to make it hotter in the sun. But also, I think some Catholic aid workers are trying to get the White House, trying to get Donald Trump to release funds for Central America, which, of course, is also taking a bit of a, well, a huge economic hit during the pandemic. What's the latest on that, as far as you know, John? Yeah, and, and we know that the economic hits, that in particular the Northern Triangle of Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, the, the, the more that they get economically hit, the more that, that generates migration, migration north. And actually another one of the secondary effects that, 
that we've seen take place. For example, in, in Guatemala, 15% of the cases of the coronavirus case in Guatemala um, have arrived by airplane from um, migrants that have been returned, that have been deported back to back to back to, to Guatemala. It's it's kind of surprising a little bit that he's talking about economic stimuluses in in that region because that's certainly more the line of what the the, the Democratic Party would say and certainly did throughout you know throughout the throughout the primaries. But I think at the moment, and I guess it's not really new in terms of his modus operandi, he's kind of throwing anything out there at all to to kind of distract attention away from from what's taking place in his um, in his in his backyard. Now you mentioned some of the maybe unforeseen repercussions, ramifications of the coronavirus pandemic, and obviously the important thing is you know to keep the death rates down to stop infection, but also it impacts on every level of life. And we're a sports station, and I've been reading that there've been some quite um, almost draconian sounding decisions about Mexican football going forward, John. Yeah, I mean again across the region, there's there's really I mean, every day brings new stories, much in the same way as in the UK, you know, with the Premier League, is it going to return? Is, is it a good idea? What are the doctors saying, et cetera? Um, and so there's a lot of uh, the news cycle is being generated across um, across opinion, the pros, the cons, and obviously, you know, the economic component of all of this, um, of all of this too. As things stand, the Mexican League is postponed, uh, as is the case with much of the uh, the rest of uh, Latin America, it's only of the big leagues, it's only Argentina that's formally cancelled its league. I mean, I, I wouldn't, um, I would have thought that a few more will get cancelled before, you know, we're at the end of this. But certainly at the moment, um, again, we, we wait and see what, what takes place and whether it's going to be behind closed doors, etc. But, a, but a, a subsequent problem, which again, I know has been stated in the UK, is in terms of the players testing positive themselves as well and that's pretty much happened across leagues in in latin america prior to the leagues being shut down as well so um a difficult a kind of catch-22 i think uh, across the region and mexico being one of the biggest leagues uh, in the region is also being looked to for leadership on the um on the subject and, and in the area and i think there's talk of them suspending all promotion and relegation for five years in the liga liga mx yeah, potentially. I mean, that seems to be fairly draconian. And again, I think in terms of the news cycles, um, even the ex, you know extreme outlier opinions get um, get a hearing. It, it, it's difficult to know, you know, what's eventually going to be imposed and to what extent. I mean, obviously there is autonomy in terms of national um, football associations and stuff. But but I would imagine at some point FIFA will step forward also with a, with a bit more guidance and, and leadership in in the subject as well. I mean, in terms of the Mexican um, you know first division, it's not that big a deal anyway in terms of um, relegation because only one team gets relegated anyway. It, it's it, it's it looks much more like the major leagues in baseball in the US than it does a Premier League scenario. I mean, there is some backwards and forwards, but it's not that much in a, um, you know, in a, in a standard context. So if, if anything, it's, it's an opportunity for the big clubs to cement their hold on power. Um, even more than they had before. Although, of course, football is incredibly popular in Mexico, as it is worldwide, but I know in Mexico it's amazingly popular. I wonder how the fans will cope and react if matches are played behind closed doors, which seems to me to be the only really sensible way, at least in the short term, to move forward. Yeah, I, th- I think Mexican society, certainly what I've observed, actually, which has been interesting, is um, uh, that uh, I think pretty people are pretty sanguine about the situation and they kind of understand what's 
what's taking place. And actually, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, the, the president, hasn't really clamped down. I mean, there is, you know, lockdown here and quarantine and so on, but it's not been heavily imposed in the way that you've seen in 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 some other in some other countries. Wow. So, if anything, I, I feel that civil society kind of has been demanding a heavier hand from government rather than a rather than a softer hand, and people are kind of generally um, understanding of. Uh, of the situation and also are fully aware with the lack of a health infrastructure, centralized uh, functioning 21st century health infrastructure, that if um, coronavirus really gets a hold here in Mexico or, you know, if, can you imagine somewhere like Venezuela, which has zero functioning um, health infrastructure of what could really take place? I mean, across the region, you're looking at a death rate of somewhere between 10 and 15 percent. Um, of people, which is way higher than it is in in a lot of other countries, and that's without any health um, health service or infrastructure really beyond. I mean, Ecuador for sure has, and maybe some parts of Brazil have basically collapsed. But but more generally across the region, the health services are still largely in control, if you like, in inverted commas of of the situation. But if numbers such, you know started to to spike, it would become absolutely uh, horrific. Now, I saw a photograph a couple of weeks ago, and I've become strangely obsessed with it since then, and with and with the story behind it, which is why I'm so delighted you're back on with us. It was an image in one of our papers, I think the Times, of the flying Cholitas, and it simply said the flying fighting in traditional costumes, which are very ornate, very colourful, very long skirts with frilly petticoats underneath, often wearing the, the Bolivian bowler hat, based on the English bowler hat, of course, and campaigning for civil rights for indigenous peoples. And since then... I've seen an awful lot of them online. They are wrestling in quite a ferocious, full-on manner. Wrestling, again, very popular, I know, in Mexico and elsewhere in Latin America. But they're also civil rights campaigners. This is an amazing movement, I think, John. It's an astonishing story, this. It is, and, and little known up until a, um, a couple of years ago when it's become something of a, of a, a tourist attraction um, in La Paz, or rather, in the outskirts of La Paz. Um, as, as you say, that the costumes are, are very traditional, and I, and I guess a lot of people, you know, when they close their eyes and think of the, of the cholas or the cholos um, in, in Bolivia, will imagine the, the bowler hat and the braids and the colourful long skirts, etc. And it was, um, I guess, a kind of an, an indigenous outfit, which not that long ago, 20 years ago, was uh, de de designed to uh, make people ashamed. Largely, it was kind of an, a, an apartheid system where yeah. people, cholas and cholos, were not allowed into restaurants, not allowed for generations. They weren't allowed into the main square in La Paz in, in Bolivia. Wow. And actually this flying cholitas, as you say, this, this wrestling troupe that has, that's been going now since 2002 and actually came into play because the male wrestling in La Paz wasn't really doing very well. So somebody took a punt on, on the cholitas, um, coming, coming front and center, um, has, has really taken not just the country and, and, and its regional neighbors by, by storm in terms of, uh, I guess, a, a, a new and emerging sport or a variant on a, on a sport, if you like, but also has in parallel seen um, accompanying the, the sport a number of high-profile topics of conversation, including you know, um, battery, abuse of women, etc., women's role in society, which has really emerged as a talking point alongside it. I've, I've been reading a lot of comments, actually, people are going to see the shows who say how, um, they find it so difficult to see women being hit because this, it's, the French elite does is a women, women's troop, yeah. but they also wrestle in amongst the men. So it's not just that you go and see one night of Cholitas fighting. And sometimes there's overlap. So sometimes the women 
and men, men wrestlers will hit the women, etc. And, and a lot of comments have been saying about how offensive that is to see women being hit in that way. But actually, that's the whole point. That's why that's being depicted yeah. in that way. It's to bring it out from behind closed doors and make it make it a you know a political point. And even more so, the fact that these are indigenous women who were the lowest of the low yeah. historically in Bolivian society. And, and am I right, Johnny? Come thinking, to the am I right, Johnny? Thinking that Chilita used to be a a negative term, a pejorative term, does it mean something like mixed race? What does Cholita actually mean? Yeah, it, you're right. It was, it, would, it was a Spanish um, epithet which was used, almost spat out, you know, on the streets. Uh, I mean, the famous phrase was chola, no, no, like you're not allowed here, chola. But, yeah. but it was, um, you know, obviously something akin to the N-word um, right. in terms of how it would have been used by, by the coloners um, back of the day, back in the day. But over the course of the last 20 years, we've increased indigenous representation in um, in Bolivia and, and so on, um, these these indigenous groups, the Aymara in particular, have stepped have stepped forward and, and been proud of their traditional garb and culture and so on. Um, and yeah, as, as you correctly say, I think it's a it's a really good news story in terms of how a cultural representation can hybridize, maybe um, you know, into sport and actually yeah. become a really positive representation of of self and indigeneity and womanhood, etc. I must say, it's a fascinating story, folks. If you go online, if you simply enter into your search engine, the Flying Cholitas, you'll see some amazing footage on that. I think there's documentaries about them as well. John, an absolute pleasure catching up with you, matey. Stay safe, and thank you so much for your time this morning. Absolutely live there from Mexico. John Bonfiglio, Central African, sorry, Central American correspondent, talking to me, Paul Ross, on TalkSport Extra Time. And up next, we thought we'd bring you this story yesterday. Had a bit of a great...